Hello and welcome to the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am one of the two co-hosts, Aaliyah. And I am Colin Bourne, drinking his coffee. And today is, what, part four of our spooky season? I think so, yeah, because we're on episode 16 right now. Yes. And and this is, I think this is part four of the spooky season. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is pretty good, uh, pretty cool because we got a long ways to go with uh, spooky episodes, so I'm excited. And today, I thought it would be fun to talk about another interesting horror genre topic. Literature. <laughs> yep, literature. We're going to be talking about three very well-known horror genre writers, authors, novelists, poets. We're going to be talking about three, and this is most likely going to be one of two-part segment because somebody was supposed to get their notes together for this and didn't even bother to do that. No comment. We had a week. I'm not going to repeat myself. I got all my notes together while I was working. That's cute. Okay, whatever. So I'm going to talk about my three authors and then hopefully by next week's podcast, Colin will have his three authors ready. So why don't we go ahead and get started? I'm going to talk about first about Mary Shelley. Now, we all know Mary Shelley was the author of the Frankenstein novel. She's famous. Yeah, but that's like her legacy. I mean, she's written a couple other stuff, which I'll get into in a minute. But Frankenstein, as far as the horror genre, is like her legacy. That's that's the novel that made her mark in the horror genre. And it's, it's just amazing. So I'm going to get into it. So... Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin and was born in London, England, August 30th, or 1797, which is coming up, actually, so... What, 1797? No, August 30th. <laughs> oh, okay. This, we're recording this August 27th. We're three days away from her birthday, so... Oh, okay. Well, happy early birthday to Mary. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mary's father was William Godwin. He was a philosopher and a political writer, and her mother, who was also named Mary Wollstonecraft, she was a famed feminist and author of the Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was published in 1792, so shortly before Mary was born. Unfortunately, though, Mary's mother passed away shortly after giving birth, and Godwin remarried in 1801 to marry Jane Claremont. She had two daughters from a previous marriage and would later on have a son with Godwin. Now, Mary didn't get along well with her stepmother, and her stepmother felt that Mary didn't need an education or didn't need to be educated at all, so she'd send one of her other daughters, Jane, to school. But that didn't stop Mary from wanting to learn. She actually used her father's extensive library to her advantage. Like, she would be seen reading pages upon pages of his philosophy novels and would sometimes often read at her mother's grave. She really enjoyed daydreaming and would often escape her, like, difficult home life through her imagination. And in my notes, I put, like, girl, same. (laughs) Like... That's what I would do sometimes, like, if I, like, if things were getting too boring at school or, like, things at home were, like, complicated, I would often, like, turn my my own imagination, I would daydream, I would... I've done that. You yeah. Know, I love, I love going into my imagination, especially when I was a kid. I had a huge imagination. And everything that was, like, you know, going wrong, especially in my life, especially school or kids or anything like that, I just like to go into my imagination and just think of great things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in a wonderful world. But she really found her niche in writing. So 
She would go on to quote in one of her books, As a child, I scribbled, and my favorite pastime during the hours given for me for recreation was to quote, write stories. So through her father's company, she published her first poem, Monsieur Nagtag Paw. I, I mean, it's all one word, Nagtag Paw, but I, I have to sound it out so I get it right. <clears throat> and it was published in 1807. And then during the summer of 1812, Mary went to Scotland to visit a family friend, William Baxter, and his family. And it was in Scotland. She felt a like, special sense of tranquility being there and would often go back like in years to come, which I think is really interesting. I love to go to Scotland. Mm. I mean, we, we talked about it in the last episode. I'd really like to go to Ireland, but I would really like to also travel to Scotland and like yeah, explore I, over there. And I always wanted to travel around the world, so I think Scotland's definitely up there. I, I really want to like I've always had I've always had like this huge fascination of Scottish and Irish culture and there's something mm-hmm. about like their music that really hits me you oh, know yeah. it's beautiful when the bagpipe beats hit oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's just me and I'm the weird one but anyway no nah, you're not the weird one mm-hmm. but no it's just it seems lovely over there and anyway it's, moving, rom- it's romantic moving on mm-hmm. So, in 1814, Mary met and began a relationship with... Okay, I'm going to probably butcher his middle name, but it's Percy Byshe Shelley. Let me see. Where is it at? B-Y-S-S-H-E. Byshe. I'm just going to try to sound it out in the best way I possibly can, but I think it's like Byshe. It almost sounds like beach, but no. No, just stop it. All right, but it's by she. Okay, go ahead. I believe that's how it's spelled. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. But he was also a poet, and he was also a student of her father's during this time as well. And he was already married when him and Mary developed their relationship, and they, the two of them actually ran away to Europe together. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at her being a little rebellious. Not only rebellious, but a little, like, I don't want to say homewrecker, but... <laughs> homewrecker. But, I mean, this relationship did bring a strain between her relationship with her father, and he wouldn't speak to her for a good while after this. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So, during their travels through Europe, they um, endured some financial troubles, and they experienced some losses. They had two children that unfortunately passed away, one passed away in childbirth. What? Well, not not childbirth. One passed away three days after childbirth, and one passed away as a young, young child, like toddler. Oh, wow. And then in the summer of 1816, they were in Switzerland, and they were staying with Jane Claremont, who's Mary's stepsister, Lord Byron, who was a British poet and politician, and John Polidori, who was an English writer and physician, and was also known to be the guy who created the vampiric genre. Oh. So you can, one could argue that Bram Stoker was not the original, like, yeah, there are vampire other pe- writer. There are other people out there. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's definitely someone I would look into hmm. for my notes for next episode. I'll check it out. John Polidori. So these hmm. people were all staying... In Switzerland, and during this trip, the group decided it would be fun to read a book of ghost stories. And then Lord Byron came up with a great idea that they should all write their own horror stories. And this is the moment when Mary began working on her novel, Frankenstein, which was also called The Modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. And I've always heard about how this story started. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting to know a little bit more about it. Well, it's it's great because <laughs> they all did this on a rainy night where they're all just hanging at the house and they're just like, let's play, let's do a game, you know, and just like, you know, storytelling. They were reading the ghost story book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Byron was the one who's like, why don't we write our own ghost stories? Like, we're most of the, he's thinking... Because they're all writers. Yeah, most of them there are writers. I mean, how fun would it be to, like, if, write your own story? Would it be crazy if he never suggested that? It, like, they're all writers. They're all hanging out. What if he suggested something else? He never suggested writing a story. Would you think Mary Shelley would have wrote Frankenstein, like, later in life or never would have? I don't know. It's hard to say. Because that's, that's a good thing to think about. Yeah, because, I mean, she would go on to write other stuff. I mean, obviously, she published her her poem first. And, I, and to my, you know, understanding through my research, Frankenstein and another book I'm going to mention in a minute would be another one that yeah. she published. So, but, yeah. But I do think it was this particular event that led to her writing Frankenstein. And I feel like I give the guy credit, because if it wasn't for him suggesting to come up with her own stories at that house, if it, if he didn't suggest that, Mary Shelley would have never done Frankenstein. Well, let's not give men too much credit. Not men. You know what he I didn't, mean. He didn't give her the idea for Frankenstein. No, he but just he gave, gave the suggestion of what to do. Like, you know, as a game. Okay. Which, so, that's cool. Moving on. Now... Mary's mother also had a daughter from an affair named Fanny, so she was Mary's half-sister. Mm-hmm. And growing up, without having her own mother, Mary was very close to her sister Fanny. Don't laugh, because this next part's going to be very sad. So later that year in 1816, Mary's half-sister Fanny committed suicide. Oh. Um, she took this loss very hard because, like I said, they shared a mother. A, mar- a mother Mary didn't have for most of her life so her sister was like her closest friend and what did she die from she committed suicide i just I mean, said no i know but how did she commit suicide what did she do i don't know it doesn't say oh so she took this heart she took this loss very hard obviously for the personal connection that she had they had with their mother and percy's wife his first wife also committed suicide later that year and it was after her death that Percy and Mary were finally able to wed in December of 1816. Oh, okay. So, I guess you, one would argue that they weren't too mournful of Percy's wife's death mm-hmm. rather than Fanny's. Yeah. But I digress. Mary published a travel log called History of a Six Weeks Tour in 1817. Now, this was something of like a travel blog that Shelley had documented during their time in Europe. And then the following year in 1818, Frankenstein was finally published anonymously. And a lot of people believe that Percy wrote it because he wrote the introduction. The novel was a huge success and the Shelleys were able to move to Italy that same year. Although Mary really loved Percy, their relationship was challenging. They would later on experience two more losses of two more children and it wasn't a secret in society that Mary and Percy had a very scandalous relationship. Mm. One that would probably be labeled unorthodox, but it's that's just how they rolled. Yeah. We got to move on with it. Yeah, no one's perfect. Exactly. In 1819, Mary gave birth to Percy Florence, and he would be the only child of the Shelleys that would live to adulthood. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, though... 
Percy Bysshe Shelley died in 1822. He was sailing with a friend in the Gulf of Spezia and drowned. Now, I don't know exactly how he drowned. It wasn't exactly made known if, like, the boat capsized and there was an accident or if he fell overboard and drowned. I don't know. But he died. And then after Percy's death, Mary worked hard to support herself and her son. She wrote several, several more novels, including Valperga, Oh, and The Last Man in 1826. Mary also pushed to promote Percy's poetry and preserving his legacy in the literary history. In February 1st, though, of 1851, Mary Shelley died of brain cancer at the age of 53 in London. Mm-hmm. She was laid to rest at St. Peter's Church in Bournemouth. Great name. Yeah. You want to know how it's spelled? The my name, oh my god, yeah. Bournemouth. Colin's last name is spelled B O U R N E. Yep. And Bournemouth is spelled B O U R N E. They, I mouth. guess, they get the the picture. I just thought that was very noteworthy, especially I follow on YouTube a channel called Hollywood Graveyard, and mm-hmm. they recently just did a English tour of cemeteries, and they visited Mary Shelley's grave. So I was very excited to see that and get to know a little bit more about her. That's cool. Yeah. I do want to check out that... uh, that Oh, can I I finish this, though? So she was laid to rest at St. Peter's Church in Bournemouth with the cremated remains of her... (laughs) With the cremated remains of her husband's heart. I was trying to drink my coffee, but damn. I know. Isn't that romantic? I feel like that's very romantic and so sweet. I think it is. Yeah. Would you do that with me? I mean, no. Here's the th- no. Here's the thing, because I can see why. Because I don't know. Like I said, I I don't know what really happened to him, especially after his death. I don't know where he was buried. I would imagine though that since he was married before Mary, he was probably laid to rest next to his first wife. Uh-huh. But but it was probably. Written his will somewhere, or Mary pushed for it, I don't know, to have his heart cremated and then laid in a plot where they could both be buried together. Yeah. So I think that's very sweet. I think it is. So I like that idea. I, like I said, I don't know if it's true, so don't come at me if it's wrong, but I just like it gives me a good romantic, warm feeling in a weird way. So in 1950, her novel Mathilde was released. Her greatest legacy remains the classic story of the struggle between a monster and its creator and has been adapted in many variations of films. Oh yeah. There are so many Frankenstein tellings in different in different ways. I have only seen the Robert De Niro one. Oh really? Yes. Man, I've seen like a million of them. Uh-huh. I mean we've also watched Young Frankenstein together and obviously if you guys know about that movie, our yeah, podcast mm-hmm. name is like a wordplay from one of the infamous. I quotes. think they got that because yeah. we did that. We said that before. We mentioned it in the pilot, but it's like you know, it kind of resonates with us in a way. So I guess in some sense, we have Mary Shelley to thank for, 
you know, that. Mary Shelley and, and also Mel Brooks for coming up with that joke because he wrote a lot of the <laughs> wrote a lot of the stuff for the film. He improvised a lot I, of the jokes. I I do love Young Frankenstein. It's one of my favorite like horror comedies. And it's the one com it's one of the movies that me and my father shared together, you know, growing up as a kid and, you know, bonding together over. Especially over mm-hmm. that movie and Mel Brooks movies, but Young Frankenstein would always hold dear to me and my father. Yeah. And I love it. And when I was doing my research on Mary Shelley, I felt like I kind of like could relate to her in certain aspects in life, especially like I said with, earlier with the using her imagination and daydreaming to escape from her daily struggles. You know, it's like if I had the the same talents of a writer like Mary Shelley or yeah. Stephen King, I could write a whole bunch of different, like, fantasy novels. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. my craft lies in visual art and not the written form. Yeah, but, I don't know, you never know. I mean, sometimes that will change. I mean, in order for me to write a story down, it would have to go through, like, five different editors and authors to, like, polish up before it's ready to, like, be published. Yeah, so we would like to thank Mary Shelley and Mel Brooks for their craft. Yes. My hat's off to you guys. And I love Mary Shelley. She's my lady. When you mean lady, you mean like... She's my lady. Like lady lady or like influence, like best friend lady or the other lady lady. She's my lady. Was it? Should I be worried? Should I be jealous? (laughs) Moving on. Okay. Edgar Allan Poe, (sighs) I would say he's kind of infamous. (laughs) No, let me get through this first, and then we'll go, you know, into why. Here we go. So, now, there's a lot of work of Edgar Allan Poe's that I enjoy. My sister does, too. She actually named her cat Annabelle Lee after his poem about her. Annabelle Lee. Yeah. Now, anyway, let me get into this before we get into some of the more scandalous stuff. So funny. Let me let me go into this first before we get to the most scandalous details of his life. Scandalous. Well, let me just let me just start this off first. So Edgar Allan Poe was one of the most influential American writers of the 19th century. He was the first person to try to make a professional career as a writer. Many of his work was inspired by events in his life. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Poe was born to a family of traveling actors in Boston, 1809. He's, his birthday is actually January 19th, 1809, which would make him a Capricorn. Oh, really? I yes. thought he'd be an Aquarius. but that He's he'd... one day shy of being an Aquarius. Damn it, man. He could have joined the Aquarius Club. I know, right? Uh, but It's all right. Let, let, me, let me get into it. So his parents were traveling actors. Their names were David and Eliza. Eliza. Okay, come on. Do the story. So in three short years, though, his parents would pass away and he would be taken in by John and Francis, Francis, Francine, Francine. Well, no, it says Francis, John and Francis Valentine Allen. Oh, uh, I was about to say, isn't they that were, the same thing? <clears throat> but they were tobacco merchants from Richmond, Virginia. And growing up, he was groomed to be a businessman and gentleman of society. And at one point, I believe, he was actually sent to Scotland and England to, you know, afford that kind of education. Mm-hmm. However, he dreamed of surpassing his idol, who was British poet, Lord Byron. Lord Byron. He's going to come up quite a bit in this dude's life. 
So in his youth, he would often write poetic verses on the backs of ledger sheets from his adoptive father's business, Uh showing how much passion he had for the written form than he had for actual business itself. Mm -hmm. Which would cause... Which would cause quite a bit of strain in his relationship with John Allen later on in life. But in 1826, Poe left Richmond and attended the University of Virginia, where he did very well in his classes, but ended up in quite a bit of debt. Because the Allens, they were very frugal. They didn't really give Poe a whole lot of money to pay off all of his tuition and his student like college bills and stuff. So he turned to gambling to try to help pay off some of that tuition, but that the work. Allen still wouldn't help with his financial problems, and out of humiliation, he was forced to drop out of college. And as if life wanted to kick him while he was down, when he went back to, I think I think he went back to Richmond to visit his fiancée, Sarah Elmira Royster, mm-hmm. he found out she was already engaged to another man. Uh, fucking floozy wow <laughs> now this is not going to be the last that we hear from her but hold on to your hat so hold on to your butts after spending three months in the allen mansion poe left to pursue to pursue his dream of being a writer now poe really really wanted to make writing a professional career and it goes without saying that without poe advocating for better payment for writers our next author wouldn't have have been as successful as he was today exactly because of this so Mm -hmm. at 18 poe accomplished his goal by publishing his first poem tame lane about the historical turkish conqueror uh, conqueror of the same name in 1826 two years later poe joined the united states military academy at west point he continued to write and publish poetry during this time until he was kicked out eight months later. Afterwards, Poe moved to Baltimore in search of relatives from his biological father's side. He got in touch with an aunt named Maria Clem, who became like a second mom to him. And she welcomed him to live in her home with her daughter, Virginia Clem. Now, Virginia... Oh, no. Yes, is his cousin. Oh, no. She is the cousin. Are you saying what I think you're going to say? I'm going to get to that in a minute. But just to let you guys know, forewarning, this is the cousin that we've all heard about. And that's disgusting. Mm. So she actually worked as a courier for Poe and would deliver letters for Poe to other women. Like, he had a lot of lady loves, but this was also during the time when he kind of, like, set his sights on Virginia. All right, first of all, I get it. He's a famous writer and everything. He has such a legacy and stuff. This is, but this is one of the things that makes him in, infamous, though. Oh, yeah, because bad quality. Yeah, it's or bad. Deed. Oh, what the hell, um, man? That's why you got... That's why, Okay, but that's I'm going to get to that, that in a minute. I'm oh, gonna get I get it now. Uh, that's weird. One of Poe's poems won in a contest sponsored by the Saturday Visitor. Which is a magazine. And winning this contest helped Poe build connections that would further his writing career. And by publishing more of his writings, he would eventually obtain an editorial position in the Southern Literature or Literary Ma- uh, Messenger in Richmond. Poe's employment, employment in the Messenger helped make magazines more popular with his stories and scathing book reviews. 
and he would develop a reputation as a ruthless critic who attacked authors' work and insulted them. Along with the Northern Literary Establishment, one of his reviews was about Rufus Griswold. He was an anthologist writer and editor, and he would become Poe's greatest literary rival in his lifetime. And at age 27, Poe moved Maria and Virginia to Richmond, and this is when he married Virginia, who was 13. Oh, was I didn't thir- want to hear that. Who was wanna... 13. I don't want to hear this. Oh my god. Mm, the hell? I mean, first of all, Edgar. that's quite an age gap. She's not fully grown yet. She's a 13-year-old child. How is he in love with her? Like, she's not, she's probably not even grown on her body I mean, parts. I just want, I want, if we have any young listeners out uh. here, especially within that age group, I just want you guys to understand something. Like, you're still, in a sense, a child at age 13. And you have some man who's, like, what, 27 or so? Like I know, like, no, love. like, I know that 13 is a weird time for most children, especially when they go through that certain stage in life, but you're still essentially a child in, a, in that age group. Exactly. So don't go looking for men who are well above your age group, and, yeah, it's just, it's just not okay. Especially, like... That's her cousin. Yeah, that's like, his cousin. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Edgar, you are gross. Even though I love your work. So although they had a happy marriage, yeah. they were still in dire straits. And to <sighs> expand his writing career in hopes of making more money, he and his family would move to New York City and Philadelphia in the span of three years, working for a number of different magazines. And although Poe gained fame with his writings, he still struggled to profit from it. For his publication of Tales of the Grotesque and, I'm going to butcher this word, but Arabesque, Arabesque, Grotesque, and Arabesque. Just pronounce it the best way I'm not doing my best here. (laughs) He was paid with 25 copies of this book. So I don't think he was actually paid in real money. I mean, if he was, he was only paid for the selling of a small Mm. amount of books. And it's probably not that much he got paid either. Yeah. So this would, you know, like I said, it would encourage him to advocate for higher wages for writers and international copyright Mm. laws. Poe also tried to establish his own magazine, but failed due to lacking funds. In 1847, The Raven was published and gained Poe more fame. With his newfound popularity, he began lecturing in New York City and demanded better pay for his writings. After publishing two more novels that year, he finally was able to start his own magazine after having bought out the buying out the owners of the Broadway Journal. However, rumors of his failures, his wife's deteriorating health, and other rumors of being in a relationship with a married woman led him to leave New York City in 1846. Now, I have a theory. Now, I couldn't find out the name of this married woman, but I have a feeling it's Elmira. Oh, Elmira? Sarah Elmira Royster, the one we talked about earlier. Oh, okay. The one who left Edgar for another man. Uh. <clears throat> so, Poe and Virginia moved to a cottage in the country where she would later pass away in 1847. She passed away at age 24, so that's very young. Yeah. Very young. She didn't even get to see everything. Yeah, she and they, I mean, if you think about it this way, too, they got married when she was 13. She passed away at 24. So they were married for like 11 years. Yeah, before she died. I can't believe her mom was okay with that, though. Uh, I don't know. 
That's so weird. I didn't even know if they were but, okay with that. But Virginia's death left Edgar very heartbroken, and he wouldn't write for months. And this would lead critics to assume that he would die soon, which unfortunately is true. But I'm going to get to that in a minute. He returned to Richmond, Virginia in 1849 and reunited with his first fiancée, Sarah. She was a widow at this point, and the pair eventually became engaged again. But while on a trip to Philadelphia, Post stopped in Baltimore and disappeared for five days. Nobody knows what happened to him in those five days, but he was found unresponsive in a bar room and sent to Washington College Hospital, where he died on October 7, 1849, at age 40. His cause of death is still a mystery, and nobody in his family, not even his fiance, knew of his death until they read about it in the paper. Wow. Like, he traveled, hadn't heard from him, sometime later, found out he was dead. Yeah. What? Yeah. What the fuck? It's like if you go on tour, like, with a group, and I don't hear from you for a while, mm-hmm. and then I find out on, like, BuzzFeed or some shit that you died from a accident or whatever. Mm-hmm the fuck how come no one tells people anything well, but i don't know it's it's a sad way to go because the way they describe his death is like unexpected he, it's unexpected but because he was in a hospital and nobody really identified him right away he was surrounded by a bunch of strangers in the hospital mm. he didn't have family didn't have friends he didn't have anybody with him poor guy yeah so after his death his rival rufus griswold that dickhead we talked about <laughs> He wrote a negative obituary of Poe in an effort to dissuade people from Poe's work. His memoir of Edgar Allan Poe raised the sales of Poe's published works and rebuilt his reputation as a literary legend. And Griswold would only be remembered today as Poe's first biographer. Aww. So, <laughs> suck on that, Griswold. Yeah, Grizzy. Clark mm, Griswold. Yeah, so... Remember I mentioned Mary Shelley's husband? Yeah. He was actually one of Poe's greatest influences as a literary That's figure. That's amazing. Lord Byron. Lord Byron, John Keats, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge hmm. were his greatest influences in yeah, literary and look, white writing. Yeah, and brought Edgar, you know? Yeah. Brought him legacy, and there's fame. No sh- and there's no shame to look up to people who've come before you yeah. as like inspiration famous incest hus- husband you know <sighs> i wouldn't let that be the only takeaway from no i know your literary idol it still literally shocks me mm-hmm. i know i know it's gross i know so <sighs> our third and final author for this episode who was in, in like he found edgar Allan poe inspiring also did he really? Yeah, he liked Edgar's work. Well, I mean, like I said, I feel like no, without Edgar's protest for better payments for writers, Stephen King wouldn't get the success and yeah. fortune he got today from his publishings. And he also found H.P. Lovecraft as an influence also. You are going to get notes about him in the next podcast episode, right? I should not have said H.P., but yes, I am. Now, it's still undetermined on when we're going to do this recording depending i guess on whenever you can get notes together whenever i can get it done yep yes so other than that let's talk about steve yes so stephen king was born in portland maine in 1947 Mm -hmm. now let me look really quick what his actual birthday was stephen king is my boy i love stephen he is such a great author 
He is. He's and amazing. A, and a huge inspiration. He could take the simplest thing and make it scary. He was born September 21st, 1947. I believe that would make him a Virgo. Oh, I thought you were going to say the, another word that rhymes with, oh, that has ver in it. No, Virgo. Okay. So he was born in 1947. His parents divorced when he was a toddler. Yep. And him and his older brother, David, were raised by his mother. Parts of his childhood were spent in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where his father lived, and Stratford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But by age 11, his mother moved them to Durham, Maine, and they would stay there for the rest of his childhood. Yeah. Life in Maine was pretty challenging for the Kings, and Mrs. King's parents had become incapacitated with old age, and they mm-hmm. needed a lot of care. And her sister's kind of convinced her like hey would you be able to like stay with mom and dad and take, take care, care of, of them? them yeah which she agreed but i mean it's not like they were not supportive according to my research they were able to provide financial assistance to help their sister take care of her parents and they provided them enough money to get a small farmhouse enough room for her the parents and the two boys yeah so yeah that's cool But after his grandparents passed away, his mother took up a job working in the kitchens of a local mental facility. King attended grammar school in Durham and then graduated from Lisbon Falls High School in 1966. And his sophomore year in college, which he attended the University of Maine in Orono, he wrote a weekly column for his school's newspaper, which was called the Maine Campus. I actually worked for my college's newspaper for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, was, it was fine. There's a lot of issues with it, but yeah, but there's fine. always issues. And he also was um, active in student politics and was a member of the student senate. And he supported the anti-war movement and believed that the Vietnam War was unconstitutional. King graduated from college in 1970 with a bachelor's degree in English and was qualified to teach at a high school level. The following year, King married Tabitha Spruce. I know it's like right after college too. It was kind of hard for him to try to get a high school teaching job. Mm-hmm. So he and his wife lived on his salary as an industrial labor laborer and and the occasional sale of a sh- for short stories in men's magazines. So kind of like Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. he would write short story short stories and poems in magazines. Don't give me that look. I said what I said. You know what's funny? I didn't want to say anything earlier, but the way you said Edgar at first. You almost said Ego. Ego Allen Poe. I'm like, let go of my oh, I Edgar. Thought, I thought you heard me say short stories. <gasps> stories. I, oh, I almost you're said You're so that. cute. Anyway. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go on. So he would sell short stories in men's magazines. His first professional short story was The Glass Floor in 1967. So this was like well before 1970 so into his like college years and he sold it to startling mystery stories which was a magazine many of his short stories would later be published in the night shift collection that was Ooh. yeah i love the night shift collection actually one of my favorite stories is from that collection is the trill of the corn oh yeah that's right he did write that Yep, and that was in the night shift stories as part of his short stories that and also um sometimes they come back and just a bunch of other little stories like that. Yeah, this was published in 1978. It's crazy. And although Stephen would eventually begin to teach high school English in 1971, he would spend his evenings and weekends writing more short stories and began working on novels. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 
1973, as either Doubleday Incorporated or Doubleday and Company published King's first novel, Carrie. The major paperback sale from this book would provide Stephen enough money to quit his teaching career and become a full-time writer. Yeah. By the end of 1973, King moved his family to southern Maine to be closer with his mother. During that winter, he continued to write two more bestsellers, Second Coming and Salem's Lot, which was originally named Jerusalem's Lot, but they changed it to Salem's Lot. Which that was one of my favorites still. When I was a kid, I loved Salem's Lot. It's such a great story. Yeah. During this time, too, Stephen's mother passed away at the age of 59. But after the success of Carrie being published in the spring of 1974, King moved again to Boulder, Colorado for about a year. And during this time, he wrote The Shining. Now, a lot of people know already that The Shining is based off of his experience at the Stanley Hotel. It's a very infamous, or not infamous, I hate, I'm sorry if I keep misusing that word, but it's a very famous hotel known for being incredibly haunted. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of people go there. Shane Dawson did a video. YouTube video going to the Stanley Hotel. Another YouTuber I follow, Kendall Ray, she and her husband went to the Stanley Hotel for a tour. Like, they give tours of the hotel. And there's a few spe- specific rooms that are w- very well known to be haunted. And it's believed that Stephen King stayed in one of these rooms and wrote The Shining during this time. That's amazing. Jim Carrey also had a wild experience, apparently. During, dur- yeah, during the recording of, or not recording, but during the filming of one of the Dumb and Dumber movies. Yeah, the first one, because didn't they ha- film that over there, over the Stanley Hotel? Yep. Really? Yep. What was his situation? Did you know, or where can I see, find that? See, Jim Carrey has never talked about what he saw in that room, but certain staff accounts have said that in the middle of the night, and it's always around 3 o'clock. Because, like I said before, it, that's the witching hour. It's yeah. 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. A lot of spooky shit, a lot of hauntings happen, happen after on. 3. Yeah. The night clerk was down in the lobby, and all of a sudden he heard screaming. And Jim Carrey came running down the main stairs and bolted out the door. Wow. Yeah. He checked out and never came back. Oh, I bet Jim was like, the shining was right. No, he like checked out and never came back, dude. The goddamn pen and is blue. Like I said, he never, he never talked about what he saw. Really? Yeah. But it's, again, it's known, it's rumored also that he probably stayed in one of the infamous haunted rooms. Oh, I wonder if... I, like, I keep saying infamous, but... I wonder yeah. if it's like the future of his movie career he saw. I'm just kidding. Shit, man. That was... I mean, that's some scary shit. You know what I think he saw? Mm. The future of Dumb and Dumber 2. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Anyway, so within the next year, in 1975, he would finish his writing for The Stand and The Dead Zone, as well as relocating back to Maine and purchasing a house in Lakes Region. Now, I can't go into further more of his biography because Stephen King is still alive to this day. He's still alive so we can't really talk too much because he's still living a legacy. All I can say is that his his books are very well known. They're bestsellers. And not only that, he, a lot of his stories were made into movies and made for TV specials yes. and shows and everything you could think of yes. on TV. I will say this though. From what I read in my research notes, he travels quite a bit and he... When he makes plans to stay in one place, he doesn't stay for long. No, he it does was, it shortly. It was written in in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna name the website that I got most of my notes from, but it's actually Stephen King 
facebook.com slash the underscore author dot html. So if you guys ever want to look up the full biography, it's there. Yeah. He went to London at one time for a year's long trip, mm-hmm. but only stayed for like a few months. He didn't stay for long. Wow. So he doesn't really like, I mean, he travels obviously, but he doesn't stay long. Yeah. And he purchases a lot of property. Like, he has a house in Colorado. He's got a few houses in Maine. God, what is he, Dracula? No, oh, he's just very successful. Yeah, like very rich. And I, I made a TikTok video last night about Stephen King. And if you guys are on TikTok and you know what I'm talking about, Hamilton's become, like, the popular thing on TikTok right now. And mm. one of the videos I see a lot, it's the song Nonstop. And it's the part where Aaron Burr sings... Like, how do you write like you're running out of time? Right day and night, like you needed to survive. Yeah. A lot of people have been taking other people's show writers, mm-hmm. movie writers, yeah. voice actors, and like doing, like listing all of their like roles and works and stuff. Yeah. I did one last night about Stephen King because this guy puts Alexander Hamilton to shame. Well, he writes a lot. Stephen you know? King has written almost 88 novels in the span of 47 years. Can we talk about this? Yeah. Can we talk about I'm going to go through the entire list of Stephen King's <sighs> novels. And I want you to bear with me because it's a long list. Oh, yeah. Incredibly long list. Out of the 88 novels he's written, four of them were written under his pseudonym Richard Bachman. 1977's Rage, 1979's The Long Walk, 1981's Roadwork, and 1982's The Running Man. Now, his reasoning for this was King had concerns that the public or publishers wouldn't accept more than one book from the same author within the year. Mm -hmm. Which is genius. So, going on. So, we have Carrie that was written in 1974, Salem's Lot in 1975, The Shining in 1977, The Stand in 1978, The Dead Zone in 1979, Firestarter in 1980, Cujo from 1981, The Dark Tower in 1982, Mm -hmm. Christine in 1983, Pet Cemetery in 1983, The Talisman in 1984, Cycle of the Wolfman in 1985, It from 
The Outsider 2018, The Institute 2019, and there's another book coming out next year called Later that's going to be released in 2021. Cool. That's a lot of books. Yeah. In 47 years. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he's hungry. He's and that's hungry. also not including some of the collective short stories like Creepshow and yeah. Night Shift and other mm-hmm. collective short stories. And he won so many awards for these novels. Let me go through those really quick. Oh, God. Mm. I'm sorry, but we have time. Okay. Because like I said, he's very well known as a horror novelist. And there's a lot of rewards to give out for writers like him. So let me get to that. He won the Alex Awards in 2009 for Just After Sunset. He won two of the American Library Association Best Books for Young Adults for Salem's Lot and Firestarter. He won the, the Balrog. Balrog Award in 1980 for Night Shift. He won the Black Quill Awards in 2009 for Duma Key. He won the Bram Stoker Award 15 times. 15-time winner. 15 times from 1987 (laughs) to 2013. I am sorry I'm getting so excited. He won the British Fantasy Award for Cujo, The Breathing Method, It, Bag of Bones, and The Dark Tower 7. He won the Dewitcher. Dewitcher, yeah. I want to say Dewitcher. No, Dewitcher. Dewitcher. Fantastic Priest. For Hearts in Atlantis, The Green Mile, Black House International Author of the Year, and The Dark Tower, again, The Dark Tower 7. The Dark Tower. The Dark Tower. He won the Edgar Award for Mr. Mercedes. Mm-hmm. He won the Horror Guild, one, two, three, four, five, six times. Yep. He won the Hugo Award in 1982 for Dance... For Dance Mac- uh, Macabre. He won the International Horror Guild Awards for Storm of the Century and Living Legend. And he won so many awards, you guys. Like, there's so many to go on. Oh, yeah. He doesn't he, joke. Yeah, he does not play around. He is, like I said, he puts Alexander Hamilton to shame. And like I said before, with him, he likes to take things so simple, like things you never think that would be scary, put it in a little scary bow and make it like the scariest story you could think of. Like he would make things that you would never think would be scary, like a car. Yeah, he did take like the most simplest concepts and make them horrifying. Especially like taking taking things as personal like experiences like experiencing fear and loss and sadness and grief and making them into like successful novels. Yeah. And it's just amazing how he like he writes them. I mean, I like a lot of his earlier works because even though some of his passages can be a bit lengthy, they do take you in. My only, the only book I had a hard time reading, though, was Under the Dome. I tried reading Under the Dome, and I could not get through the first three chapters. I'm like, get to the, like, get to the plot. <laughs> I'm like, I need you to find the point and get there, please. Like, Well, that's what Stephen's known for. He, he builds up everything so slowly. And just like, especially for the It book, he did the same thing. Oh, I loved It. Yeah. I remember reading It when I was working at the hotel. And it took me quite a bit to get through. I still haven't finished it. <laughs> I put it aside, completely forgot about it, and haven't finished it. Hi, baby. I know me. Good morning, my puppy. Yep, Bowie's here again. Our special guest. My special boy. <laughs> but yeah, Stephen King is just that good of a writer. 
Exactly. He's so amazing. And then, like, his cameo appearances in some of the movie adaptations are amazing. Like, I know it's, like, subtle, and it's just, like, it's Stephen King. But it's, like, it's fucking Stephen King. Oh, yeah. And that's you can tell I, what he looks like, too. And that's how I felt when I saw him in It Chapter 2 when, when James McAvoy goes into the pawn shop and sees his bike and he's talking to the, the guy who works there. And all you can see is, like, Stephen's eyes and his head. I'm looking at the screen like, is that fucking Stephen King? Yeah. And then he stands up like, hey, that's fucking Stephen King. Like, I was so excited. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> he has a very distinct look, too, you know. Oh, my God. You see amazing. Stephen King, and he looks kind of creepy, but he's always looked that way. But he's amazing. But he is an amazing person, author. Just, uh, yeah. I wish I, feel, I met him. But I feel like that's how it would be in real life if I saw Stephen King, like, in passing. I'm like, is that fucking Stephen King? And I'm like, oh, my God, that's Stephen King. Like, I would be so excited. And I'm like, honey, control yourself. <laughs> I no. <laughs> no, I Don't won't. Don't tell me what to do. Oh my god! Even Stephen would be like, "Hey, calm down. Like, <laughs> take a breather." Yeah, and then you're, you're gonna calm. be okay. And I'm like, "Sure, you listen to him." <laughs> yeah, because it's Stephen King. What? Who are you? <laughs> I'm your husband. So? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I need to be a famous writer then. You're no Stephen King. No, but I could be. Not really. I couldn't be. I had to so, be my own. So I guess that like, ridiculous. I guess that concludes <laughs> our discussion for now for horror genre writers authors novelists mm -hmm. is it okay if i sign off sure what today? you got do you got a, a little catchy quote or something not a, well maybe a catchy quote but hang on just here you you, you do your thing well since uh, we're gonna be running out of time we just want to thank everyone for listening today and we hope you have a safe wednesday yep and Stay, stay tuned definitely for our next podcast episode. We're still not sure what it's going to be just yet. But we'll figure it out as we go. You know, we definitely are good at being spontaneous. We're just pushing, like, our ideas. I'm all set, so I can... No, 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 but are, is your guest for your one episode... When, but, is, when is that going to happen? But I will have I will have a guest on the show, and I will be talking good, with my... Good luck figuring out the controls of this thing. Oh, don't worry. I'll figure them out. He will be on the show with me to talk about... I think we're going to be talking about horror films, history of just horror films in general. I mentioned in the last episode we were going to be doing a live stream of us doing some Halloween crafts. Yeah. That's still going to happen. And I'm thinking maybe next Tuesday we can sit down and record it. This will give me time to kind of clear out the table and get the station ready for maybe craft. I mean, we'll try to find time sometime next week to do it. But when, once we once I get the station ready... We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll announce it on the Facebook page, Twitter account, and maybe Instagram yeah. that we'll have up would, sometime soon. Yeah. I would like to do it on mine also, but I'll do that separately. Yes. So stay tuned for that. Stay mm -hmm. open for that. And exactly. we will be officially signing off on this episode. We are. And this has been the 16th episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin Bourne. And I am Aaliyah. Signing off with saying. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud by night, chilling my Annabelle Lee, so that her highborn kingsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea.